Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, everybody. If you're looking for a way to pass the time this winter, I've got just a solution for you. Go to www.bcinteriorsci.ca and join a great conservation organization and help them advocate for hunters from all over. While we're on the topic of conservation, have you all heard of 2% for conservation? 2% is a nonprofit organization that helps promote people and businesses that have dedicated at least 1% of their time and 1% of their money to conservation. I can't say enough about them over there. You can check them out at www.fishandwildlife.org. Okay, so this is episode number 15 of the Focus Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by James Gibran. Him and his brother Lucas have found a really cool way to engage youngsters in topics of conservation. Smile Outsider introduces kids to the importance and different aspects of nature through a series of books. After this podcast, make sure you go and check out their webpage. They can be found at www.smileoutside.com. Make sure to use the promo code FOCUS1. That's the number one not the word one, and you're going to receive 10% off your order. James is going to tell you more about Smile Outside, so let's get into it here. Well, this sucks. Yeah, I can hear you good, buddy. Weather looks good down there. Oh man, it's it's cold today. I think it's like forty something degrees. <laughs> oh, that's rough. That's rough. You're down in Florida. No, I'm in, actually I'm in, I'm in Houston, Texas. Oh, have, you are. Yeah, I have a Florida number. I used to be in Florida. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Well, uh, thanks for uh, taking a bit of time to come on the show with me, man. My pleasure, man. Appreciate the invite. That's great. So, uh, you ready to roll? We'll just maybe dive into this. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. There's a couple of hunts of yours that I'm just dying to get into, um, one one especially, but uh, but before we dive into that, uh, can you give the listeners an introduction to yourself? Maybe, uh, you know, where you grew up and your connection to the outdoors, that sort of thing? So, my name's James Gibran, and uh, I've been hunting my entire life. My, my dad took my brother and my sis- sisters uh, fishing uh, since we were tiny, my brother and I hunting since we were tiny. Uh, it's a really important thing to 
my brother and I, um, being in the outdoors, wildlife, and being able to enjoy places that are still pristine. And uh, unfortunately, those places are dwindling. Um, my brother and I, we, we co-founded the company, uh, Smile Outside, which I think we're going to get to here in just a little bit. Basically, though, it's, it's a company that we uh, try to introduce kids to wildlife and wild places and give back to conservation. Yeah, right on, man. So uh, you and your brother started the company. Yes, sir. How's, uh, how's it been working with your brother? I know uh, yeah. my, <laughs> I have two brothers. I have yeah. a business here. We started out uh, in business together. It, uh, it didn't work out so well. No, and that, that tends to be a common theme between a lot of people I know. But uh, my brother and I, we, we bump heads a lot on all kinds of things in life. But when it comes down to he and I teaming up, whether it's going hunting or the business so far, things have gone really well for us. We have really different uh, ways of looking at things, which um, can sometimes uh, breed a little bit of uh, conflict and discussion. But at the end of the day, it brings more ideas to the table. And I think I think we complement each other really well. How about growing up? Do you guys uh, you guys get into it much growing up? <laughs> I know my, I know with, again with my brothers, there was uh, more than a handful of times where where mom had to put away the fine china. That's for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. There's there's plenty of times where we had the <laughs> the, the knockout fights between he and I. I was I'm, I'm a year and a half older than him, so I, I gave him a lot of a lot of. Uh, hard times when he was a little bit younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. I got a, I'm the oldest of three. I've got uh, a brother. He's uh, about a year and a half, two years younger than I am. Uh, and same thing. There was, uh, I used to give him a lick until he was about 18 and he grew to be about uh, three inches taller than me. So that stopped then and there. <laughs> there, you, there you go. <laughs> so are uh, you married now? Uh, I'm not. No, no, I'm, no. Divorce of for four years now. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. gotcha. What about kids? I've got a five-year-old son. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's, cool. he's a great little boy. Yeah, I'm sure he's right into the outdoors. Big time. Yeah. Big time. His favorite his favorite food is squirrel tacos, so. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, we, uh, I've taken my kids out a few times squirrel hunting, but uh, it's pretty tough. We're only allowed one specific uh, type of squirrel, the, uh, the gray squirrel. Okay. And they seem to only be found in town. You oh, just can't. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I don't know if the neighbors would uh, think too highly of us shooting a, a 22 in the backyard. No, I think even up in Canada, that might be a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So how about your brother? He's uh, Does he have kids? Uh, he's engaged right now. He has no kids. He's uh, due to get married in October of this year. He got postponed from last year. But yeah, he's he's on his way to the married life. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So what inspired Smile Outside? Uh, really, my it was because of the books I was reading my son, Adam, and my dislike for the, the constant way that animals are portrayed as uh, cartoons, clothes, talking. They're very anthropomorphizing. It's, it's just not a real good way to introduce kids to wildlife and to have them grow up appreciating like the natural beauty of, of things. And I think it, it tends to uh, manifest itself in a way that um, people have real un, unrealistic expectations of wildlife management. And uh, I think, I think we're seeing a lot of that rear up here, at least in the States. I'm not sure how it is up for you guys, but there's a lot of, 
a lot of anti stuff popping up, a lot of anti legislation. I think a lot of it stems from just this um, anthropomorph anthropomorphization of, of wildlife. So our, our books um, really focus on portraying animals as they really are, wild animals and their natural beauty. And as I was reading a book to him, I, I was I was griping my brother and uh, he challenged me to to decide, uh, uh, challenged me to write, write some of my own. And so we uh, right then and there pretty much started planning out the future of the company and what we wanted to write about. We had no idea if it was going to work or take off, but, you know, so far it's been a really fun ride. And, you know, thanks to my son, like loving books and me reading to him some books that uh, I didn't like. That's how it all started. Yeah. So how long have you guys been doing this now? So we've, we've uh, been in business now shipping books for almost a year and a half. And prior to that, there was about a year of planning that went into it before we, we actually launched our first books. Oh, there you go. So on the initial launch, how many books were involved? The, our first set of books was a, a book, uh, a set of five books. We called it Conservation Series One because we didn't really know what was going to happen. We wanted to make sure that, that set kind of gave a, a broad cast of, of all the different types of wildlife that people might find. So we did one on antlered animals. We did one on pheasants and quail ducks and geese, one called clean water, and then another one that focuses on predators is called Coyote Lost Her Voice. We didn't really feel comfortable naming that one Predator for uh, <laughs> our book, so we, we kind of, we tiptoed on the, uh, of the line of anthropomorphization with the coyote in her travels in that book, but we, we tried to stay as true as we could to our mission. That's good stuff. You just had an idea of what you wanted to do. So how did you get that idea out to the public? Like there's a lot of processes involved in, you know, getting a book from thought to actual consumer. So like, did you, do you guys have a team you worked with initially or just did it all yourself? You did all the artwork or. Uh, we definitely did, did not do the artwork. That uh, That is absolutely not one of our strengths. Um, <laughs> even though we, we actually, for a very brief moment in time, uh, teetered on the idea of, of learning how to draw ourselves. <laughs> we, uh, we put a quick stop to that. Um, so once we, once we had the stories written out, we actually, I, I recruited an art teacher that I worked with at the high school I was teaching at, um, Ana Ortiz. She uh, illustrated all the five of our first books for us. And uh, additionally, one of, the, one of the books in our next set as well. So yeah, we we, uh, we wrote the books, had them illustrated. Uh, we found a printer here in the U.S. that we really liked a lot. We talked to them, and uh, they of course ran some samples for us. We loved it, loved the quality they were producing, and then we just have used them since. And they're based out of New York, so it's a, it's a little bit of a travel for the shipping, but it's w- well worth it. You know, that's that's something else. Now you have, you said you have two sets of books. You got another one? Sure. Yeah. That's uh, our conservation series too. It's a three book set and that focuses on fish. So what we have is uh, one called fun fish and that's a lot of the warm water species like largemouth bass, pike, etc. cetera. And uh, one called cold water and that is a f- fly fishing book about trout species, actually trout and char all are in there. Um, and then the third one is called reef. And that's obviously about reef, reef fish and reef ecosystems. 
And what we did for that set was kind of unique compared to the first set, actually. We, we decided to use three different artists, one for each of the books. So each book has a completely different feel to it. One's a digital, one's pastel, and one's watercolor. So they look completely different from each other. And I think it, it's kind of awesome the way it, all, it just, it gives, it gives a, like a whole different perspective than, than the first set. The first set's really beautiful, but uh, it's just kind of cool to have different folks uh, involved in the whole process. Right. Your books, what kind of content is in each book? Like what's yeah. the message that you want that, that you guys try to give out through, through these books? You know, you mentioned you have one that's you know, on different, you know, antlered animals, one on duck and, ge- and geese, coyotes, etc. What kind of message does each book sort of portray? So our overall mission for Smile Outside is to educate and engage kids with uh, wildlife and conservation. So we, we are introducing different species to the to, to kids and the different processes of nature, but also in, in each of their books, we're, we're mixing in like little conservation ethics. Um, like for example, our pheasants and quail book, we talk about how important the grasses are right. to, to those birds, not in just terms of, of cover, but also to provide uh, food for, for them and for the insects that they also eat as well. So by pointing out the importance of, of, gra- of wild grasses, it's, we're kind of giving a nod to conservation organizations like Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever who work really hard to provide good habitat for those species. It's great. Now, you mentioned a couple conservation groups there. You guys are part of uh, 2% for Conservation as well, aren't you? Yeah, that's how yeah. that's how I actually found you guys. I I just joined that group as well, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's a that's a really great organization, and I, I like that they're promoting a, a, a way for companies to show the the awesome things that they're doing for yeah. conservation. Yeah, no, Jared has a real vision of of what he wants to do and how to get there, and and uh, him and his group of people he works with, they uh, they do a fantastic job. Yeah, I, I, he's he's a uh, he's. He, Got a little six ball right now. I hope he's doing okay. I'm sure he's going to pull through. He's a, he's a tough SOB, I'll tell you that, though. So you're in Houston. You moved from Florida. You always been uh, out in Florida? No, we, we actually kind of uh, have a weird path that we take. We uh, we were born here, in, actually, in Houston and moved away when we were when I was five. We moved to California for a decade up in Northern California. We did a lot of hunting and fishing up there. Um, it, it's a really cool place, actually. Um, people don't really understand the uh, hunting and fishing opportunities that California has, but they have a lot. Is that right? Yeah, you always hear that. There's very limited hunting opportunities in California. I mean, we come from BC and, you know, I think we probably have more species um, in our province than any other place in uh, North America for the amount of over-the-counter species we can just go hunt. So, um, yeah, California, it's very limited, um, especially when you, when you talk about big game, it's very limited draw opportunities. Um, I, I think just even for a deer tag, now this is old information, so I don't know how, how accurate it is, but you had to apply and you, you could apply for one deer tag a year and not everybody got a deer tag, but they have so many so many different animals there from pronghorn to black bears to all kinds of upland upland game it's, it's a it's just a really cool place and in the northern half of the state they have a lot of national forest and a lot of blm so if anyone ever wanted to go to california and hunt public land it's absolutely something they could do 
we see all the forest fires going on down in California every year, which is, you know, it's amazing that there's anything in California left. It just seems like every year there's a new record set for forest fires in that state. It's, uh, it's amazing that there's any habitat left for wildlife down there. Yeah, it places on fire quite often. Yeah, when, see, when I think of California, I think it, it would be more of a, a traditional non-hunting state. But uh, um, obviously, if, if there's hunting opportunity there, then there's going to be hunters. So, Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely, from what I know from the people who I still keep in contact with out there, it's definitely not a, a super hunter-friendly state. Um there's a lot of legislation that's been passed to, to really restrict a lot of a lot of hunting access, but that's a whole different rabbit hole. We, I don't know if I want to go down, down right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think over the next little bit, you guys uh, with hunting and firearms, you might have your hands full. Just you know, from what we see up here in Canada with with the new government, the change in power, you guys might have have a little bit of issues with uh with guns and and hunting. I know in Canada here, we our federal government, he just uh, he passed a, a major bill that was banning a whole, a whole whack of firearms. And, uh, you know, it's, it's caused yeah, a lot of consternation in the community. I, I was in the just ranting, community. ranting about that the other day, actually. And, uh, was, am I correct in saying that like, uh, semi-auto shotguns were involved in that list? Some semi-auto shotguns, uh, now anything over, uh, well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, there was a lot of misconception about it, talk and speculation, and there's so much false information out there that I don't exactly know a definitive list of what's illegal and what's legal. I know any assault-style type shotgun, semi-automatic shotguns are illegal, and anything under a 10-gauge is illegal. Now, I could be a little bit wrong about that, but, uh, I mean, if I am, I'm sure I'm going to hear about it, but uh, as far as I know, that's what it is for the shotguns um and there was some other firearms on there as well i know there was a lot of uh, plinkster 22s that were on the list and stuff and stuff that aren't going to do any damage they're mostly for guys at the range and and yeah. it's basically going to hurt small businesses what it's going to hurt more than anything that's unfortunate that's really yeah. unfortunate yeah man yeah it is it really is so you know i, I want to get back to to your business and your book and stuff here but since we're on the topic of hunting man you got a couple hunts i watched that uh that are pretty good you know what i mean that's uh well one especially there i want to get into but uh maybe your texas hunt your texas mule deer hunt uh i was hoping maybe you can just uh, tell me a little bit more about that i watched uh, a bit of the video that you yeah. that you and your brother made yeah uh disclaimer i'm not a good film editor at all or we're not good filmers either so it's just, it's just for fun, but that it was a really, really cool hunt. And, uh, the way it works down here in Texas is it was, a, it was a mule deer hunt and in Texas, big game other than whitetail deer for the most part is on a, on a special draw and the mule deer are, there's not a lot of mule deer tags issued in the state, um, for public land. Now, if you have private land, there's there's tags that you can buy with your uh, over the counter with your license. Not a problem on private land, but as far as public land goes, there's not a whole lot a lot of opportunities. And the property that I got drawn for was the Big Bend Ranch State Park. It's way down south on the southern border of Texas, right against Mexico, actually. And in that unit, it's a 300,000 acre unit. It used to be a private ranch that um, Texas Parks and Wildlife took over, 
they purchased it a number of years ago and uh, I use it for recreation purposes now. But they issued a dozen rifle permits a year for that unit. And uh, as you can imagine, the demand for those permits is really high. So I've been applying for that hunt for uh, 11 years at the time before I drew. And I was actually oh. very lucky, lucky to draw. I, I mean, I felt really lucky. But it, it's a random draw. So I saw people there that had been applying for one year. So it's 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 good to have that random possibility. But it, it's highly unlikely to draw ever again. And uh, that's too bad because I would really love to go there. It's, it's a yeah. Are, are, is there if you already get drawn, can you still put in for another draw? Yeah, you or, can. But so. you just have like in BC, how it works here is we run off uh, a lottery system, and then if you supposedly if you've had a draw on the lot for some species, the next three years are harder to get. You have less chances of getting if you had never drawn. Is it the same down there? Uh, no, no, like we don't we don't have that for here. Uh, I know a lot of the western states down here have waiting periods for some of their like moose, sheep, and goat tags, and some are just once in a lifetime even. But down here, no, we can we can apply again. So I'm I'm back in it now. I got a couple like uh, two points now, again. But I drew it, and it's a beautiful desert ecosystem down there. Um, it's very uh, mountainous as far as mountains go in Texas. Yeah, it looked like it, like the landscape that you guys are filming there. I mean, the landscape looked cool. It it was surprising that um, it was in Texas because when I think of Texas, you know, being from from Canada and we, you know, the mountainous regions, regions that we have, you think of Texas as just being flat and full of cactus and, and right. sand. You don't, you know what I mean? You don't, there, there was nice rolling hills and some trees and sagebrush and yeah, it looked pretty neat down there, man. Yeah. It, it, honestly, it was one of the most beautiful places I've been to and I've been all over the, all over the country. Um, I really enjoyed it. So the, the way it worked was there's different compartments in the unit. And we have an orientation prior to the hunt where the parks, parks uh, war, the warden, he does a random draw and assigns each of the hunters one of the compartments. And uh, the compartment I got drawn in was my absolute last choice, if I could have cho chosen. It was a compartment that was right where the visitor center is, and it was super flat, had really uh, probably the, the poorest uh, habitat in the entire park. It was, I mean, I hunted it for one day, saw maybe one set of tracks. I, I put on like seven or eight miles on my boots. Luckily th there was a couple hundreds that did not show up for the hunt. So I was able to go back and talk to the warden and he let me swap out my unit, my compartment. So I was able to the next day, um, hunt a unit that had a lot of, uh, really good terrain in it. A lot of places for for bucks to hide and it was only a two and a half day hunt so it, it wasn't a lot of time and uh the next morning it, it, it rained it rained a lot prior to uh, us getting out there and uh it was wet and cold and this is all texas standard so a lot of your listeners might be laughing at me now <laughs> but, <laughs> i'm sure yeah i'm sure they I'm sure they are the canadian well i mean the majority of my listeners are canadian so uh yeah but uh, so as as the, the rain kind of rolled out, sun sun got a little higher. Me and my brother, we we uh, hiked over a couple of ridges, uh, about a mile and a half or so from where we parked, and 
found this really beautiful drainage that had a lot of fingers feeding into it and it just felt right. So we decided to sit there and, you know, hang out for at least, at least the, the rest of the morning hunt. And it wasn't long before, uh, a group of does come, come barreling over the hill in front of us about 200 yards away and in hot pursuit, as the video shows is, a, a pretty mature buck, um, chasing one of the does really hard. He was very intent on, um, yeah, on yeah, he was, he, he was definitely hot after that one. Doe. <laughs> you could, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely worth checking the video. Yeah. He was right on her heels the whole way for a, for a little bit too. Yeah. And, uh, it was, I don't know if you heard, if you turn the volume up, you can hear him grunting in there. And, uh, it, it was just really cool. And, uh, finally he got to a position that was pretty steep quartering away shot for me. And I went ahead and let one rip and ended up getting my first mule deer buck. And it was really cool, a really cool experience. Just the way it all unfolded made it even that much better in, 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 the, in the place that I was in. And I had my brother there. It was, just, it was one of like those hunts that's just kind of like perfect, you know? Like yeah. Everything lined up. Yeah. No, it was, uh, that was a nice, that was a nice muley, man. That was, uh, that was your first first muley um it was a good looking buck uh did they end up aging the buck for you at the end no they didn't they didn't age the buck i, I figured it to be about a three or four year old myself just looking at it but uh you yeah, know if that was a bc buck i would say yeah that's definitely a three-year that's kind of what i was thinking too He's, he had a little bit of, of a nose starting to roll up on top and some gray in the face a little bit so i knew he was probably past two and a half for sure yeah but uh i mean he, Compared to the the whitetails I shoot out here, like he was huge. Like his yeah. body was just huge, and yeah, uh, he's probably small compared to y'all's y'all's deer. But I mean, we had we, the crazy thing about that hunt was for the biologists there they they didn't age it, which was weird. They didn't pull any teeth or anything like that. They just wanted the weight, the dressed out weight. So we were allowed to dress out the animal in the field, but they wanted us to bring it whole back to Oh really? Yeah, that's so, weird. So we had, we we had to dra- drag this buck out a mile and a half, and I mean this is there's a ton of cactus out there. I, I was taking pictures. I I think I documented like seventeen different cactus species out there with my camera. It was so I mean it was slow going to get around all that stuff, but at the end of the day uh, we got him out. What did he weigh in at? Uh, he dressed out. He was one sixty. Oh yeah, that's a decent buck, man. Yeah, right on. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good. That was a that was a good hunt. Fun to watch for sure. Thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed, it, man. You guys, uh, you chased my antelope down there as well. Yeah, so we've we've uh, hunted antelope in New Mexico, I think, three times, twice. The first time, my brother and I both we we uh, drew a party application, so we both got tags. Uh, he ended up shooting a really nice buck. And I ended up not, and then it was a muzzleloader hunt. I ended up throwing that muzzleloader in the garbage. Uh, <laughs> I, sold, I sold it, but it was it was a muzzleloader I've had for like 20 years. And I think in the, the early stages of my muzzleloader hunting, I didn't really know how to care for the barrel that good and clean that barrel out. So it was just a, a cruddy barrel. I didn't, needless to say, I didn't shoot anything. I missed, I missed some buck, but, uh, I came back a couple of years later and I shot a nice one myself. And, uh, oh yeah, so you got redemption. I did, I did, I really did. 
Yeah, those are pretty neat critters. I got uh, I got an antelope this uh, early this September archery antelope, which is pretty cool. There you all have those in BC? No, we don't. Uh, I got a buddy out in um, Alberta, so there's a lot of antelope out there. So I went out and hunted with him, and um, their technique's pretty interesting. Yeah. So it's a pretty gnarly way of hunting. I I don't know. It's uh, definitely leave it up to an Alberta to come up with this style of hunting. So basically. So basically we drive in glass fields. When we spot a group of antelope, he would call, ask for permission from the landowner. Um, once we have permission, we we conjure up a strategy plan of how to get within 100 yards of those antelope. 200 yards, 100 yards. So we'd sneak out, me following him. He has a decoy, uh, a buck decoy, like an antelope buck decoy. It's down. I'm behind him with an arrow knocked, and we're crawling, belly crawling along the sage grass and the cactus. And we try to sneak up to the group till we can get within about, you know, 100, 200 yards. So we'd sit there, and then once we got to a good spot, he'd flip the decoy up. And then right away, the dominant buck in the group, he'd see the decoy and he'd start getting all riled up and doing circles and stuff. And take charges at this decoy and then the idea was the antelope's going to run up and at the last second he's going to realize that it's not an antelope and he's going to stop uh he's the guy in front's quickly going to get a range on it in that time you have to draw back when he ranges it he's going to say left or right indicating which side of the decoy the antelope is on so he, he ranges it for you says left or right you draw back as he yells out the range and the position he dives out of the opposite way and you're supposed to let the arrow fly um you know we did it a few times uh we never got close enough where we can actually where i could actually let an arrow fly but we end up getting one and at i got him at 52 yards and he was kind of running away and i let an arrow go and it got him it was a little bit back but uh nonetheless i got my first antelope it's pretty cool <laughs> Yeah, that sounds pretty exciting, though. Yeah, yeah, but man, those things sure taste good. Oh yeah, man. I, I so didn't. Uh, yeah, they are. I didn't. Uh, the meat didn't last long. For I think I got back on. I got back in the first week of September, and it was gone by the end of the month. Oh, wow. So uh, we ate it every night at barbecues, and nice. Uh, my brothers dipped into it, and they snagged a whole bunch. But another hunt I want to talk to you about. Kind of the main event. What I've been, uh, you know biting my fingernails to talk to you about. I've spent a lot of time chasing elk up here in BC. Uh, you know, I had a lot of tough, unsuccessful hunts. Um, well, let me back up here. So, you know, like many hunters, there's probably, you know, I got a bucket list of hunts I want to do, like I'm sure you do and, and a lot of guys listening do. But uh, for me, my top three are New England stag, a grizzly bear hunt. And, you know, now that the grizzly bear is banned from hunting in BC, it's going to have to be a Yukon grizzly. And a New Mexico elk hunt. So for an American citizen outside of hiring a guide, how does, how does one get a New Mexico elk hunt without, without getting into any specifics of your hunt? How does one just acquire such a hunt? So is, is that an over the counter or again, is that work on an LA, uh, like a, uh, an entry hunt? So New Mexico is one of just a small handful of Western States that has a random draw no preference points, no bonus point system for their big game. So it's a completely random draw for residents and non-residents. However, they only allow up to 
of available tags for any particular unit to be issued to a non-resident without a guide. So there's, if you're, if you're a non-resident applying in New Mexico for elk or for any other big game for that matter, you can apply and you are hoping to get one of the up to 6% of the tags available in that unit. If you go through a guide in New Mexico, there's another set of tags up to 10% that are allocated for, uh, I believe it's, I'm not sure, I think it's guides, not just specifically non-residents, but it's guided hunts. Um, so you have to have some paperwork saying that you already have hired a guide before you can apply into that draw. But for you, if you're not hiring a guide, you can apply to completely random draw you pick your top couple, two, three, forget how many units, and you just hold your breath for, yeah, do it. for a long time. Is there a lot of entries? Like, do a lot of mugs uh, put in for that draw? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on which units. Some units are a little bit better odds, but generally it, it's 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 not a very likely tag that you're going to get drawn. Uh, I was super lucky in the fact that I got drawn number one for a unit and don't, two, don't give any, don't, don't, uh, don't tell me any details about your hunt or what you got yet. Cause uh, I kind of uh, want to tee I want to tee it up here. I'm not saying anything yet, <laughs> but the, the crazy part is I got drawn for that hunt and for my New Mexico antelope hunt in the same year, the one that I got my, uh, my antelope on. Oh, really? So I had back to back hunts, like, uh, just two months, two, two or three months apart on, on, and it's like super low odds. And I, I drew both, both tags and I was really ecstatic about that. So the, so you did the antelope hunt before the elk hunt. The antelope hunt was in August. Oh yeah. So that, that's a good, at least that way you get a, you know, an idea of the, of the terrain and stuff in the landscape. Yeah. So I, I was able to go do my antelope hunt and I got that done pretty quickly. I think it was on, I think it was the first day of the hunt, actually the first or second day of the hunt. And then I, I had a few remaining days I had scheduled in for that hunt. So I drove a couple hours and went and did some scouting for my elk hunt that year. So I got some boots on the ground, which was really awesome. Yeah. No, it, uh, it definitely, definitely paid off in the end. So, you know, like I said, you know, I, I spent a lot of time watching elk, talking elk, studying elk, hunting elk, you know, in all that time, I've never heard the phrase, I killed my first elk on my very first trip or on the very first day of my very first trip. Well, how about you? I don't know where you would have heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I've just been dying to hear the details about this hunt. Well, there's definitely a lot of luck that plays into that. I mean, for sure. I have this conversation with Luke all the time and we, I don't know why it keeps coming up, but there's definitely a lot of luck, but I feel like we pre prepared for it. Um, we spent a lot of time. Well, first of all, okay. So I, I applied for the unit. It was my last, last, last choice of units that I chose. And I chose it because it was one of the higher odds which I think was still like a two or 3% chance of drawing. And uh, it's not known for having, for having like really big bulls in it, which I didn't care about. Um, the success rate was lower than most units, which I really didn't care about either. Uh, when he and I go hunting, we, we, we tend to look at like hunter success rates and kind of double those odds 
for he and I, just because we're we're probably more seasoned than most hunters that are calculating to that. So when, when we did that, we had about a forty percent chance of of getting a bull out of there. And uh, so I drew. It was awesome. We went to the antelope hunt, finished that up early, drove out, and we had done tons and tons. I mean, I don't know how many dozens of hours I spent on the computer, uh, on chat rooms, talking to folks, on Google Earth, looking at satellite images. Uh, I mean, just combing over every square inch, trying to find out. And honestly, like one of, one of the most important things that I did as a new elk hunter was I went back to Randy Newberg's uh, podcast and YouTube's and re-listened to everything that he talked about when it came to uh, hunting late season elk. Are you are y'all familiar with with Newberg up there? Oh yeah, yeah. No, you betcha. So I think that was actually really integral. I'm not trying to like be like a Randy fan. I love him. He's a great guy. Um, but I really, it really, it, it helped me a lot kind of just understand what I was trying to look for on those maps. One of the, actually the biggest things that I came across in my, my scouting was a guy, uh, on the hunt talk forum who said that he's hunted that unit before. And he pointed me in, in a direction, uh, of a particular area and I asked him why and he said oh because it's easier to access you don't want to go over here because it's impossible to access it's all just cliffs and you you can't get an elk out of there even if you didn't shoot one I was like perfect that's where I'm going so, so <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say because I seen the video <laughs> and uh <laughs> if that if where you guys were wasn't the place he was talking about then man i wouldn't even want to see the place he was talking about because you guys were uh you're in some pretty pretty gnarly terrain there with those cliffs and uh man yeah but anyway uh, i keep going here i'm interrupting yes. so so i we, we started focusing our, our scouting attention on that general area of the unit which was really really there's there's a lot of steep cliffs there kind of just just falls off the end of the earth on that side of the unit so we, we were looking for places that would have just a little bit of food and some sanctuary and we narrowed it down to a couple different spots that we were able to go do some hiking on back in august of that year and we found two areas that we we liked a lot like really looked good we saw a lot of old sign which doesn't mean anything and we didn't see any elk at all which also didn't mean anything to us because we knew this unit was a, was a, was a really big uh, migratory corridor type of unit. So we, we knew we were going to be hunting in December was when this tag was. So we, we didn't care if we didn't see elk there in August. It wasn't any of our, our concern. Uh, again, we were just hoping that was a good way to think about it. And uh, so December came around, we drove out there. We were hoping that no one would be already in that area camped up when we got there and it was kind of a, a pain to drive down and get down this dirt road uh we got there and no one was there yet we got there the day before this the season opened so we were able to set up camp and uh just before it got dark we got set up and for camp and got some sleep we woke up bright and early the next morning we had about a 15 minute walk to the edge of a cliff where we could look down this cliff into a valley and had some really good visibility 
and I, I'm like embarrassed to say, like 15 minutes into glassing, I, I see I see, <laughs> I see a bull, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, hey Luke, there's an elk, and so then we're we're watching this bull trying to find out where it's going to go bed down for the day, and in that, I don't know, it was probably about a two hour period, we end up seeing three more bulls pop up with him that we didn't see right away. So I ended up there with four bulls hanging out together in a little bachelor group. You guys must have been just like, man, I like, I thought elk hunting was supposed to be tough here. I, you know, <laughs> like what's, you know what I mean? Like, that's incre- that's crazy. It is crazy, and I think I think it kind of it kind of made up for it in the the location that it was in, because we could see them just just fine from where we were. They were only twelve hundred some odd yards away from us, but it was. It, in order for us not to have to literally rappel down a cliff 800 feet, we had to backtrack. Uh, I don't know. Instead of walking a straight mile, we had to end up walking. It was probably close to like four or five miles to get, get to where those bulls were. Um, by the time we got there, it was, it was late in the evening. It was probably, I don't remember what time it was. Maybe like an hour before dark or before shooting light. I forget what it was exactly, but it was late in the day. It took us five or six hours to get over there. And uh, didn't see anything, didn't see anything, didn't see anything. We were hoping they would feed back out into that little grass pasture that we were watching them feed in, and they didn't. So right before it started getting too dark for us, we knew we had a really, uh, a really crappy hike back to camp. We were going to take a shortcut this time, which was a more direct route since we weren't trying to to hide from elk. So we decided to leave our vantage point there a little bit early while we still had enough light to kind of get started. And maybe two or 300 yards away, we saw a group of doe, uh, mule deer, and we're just looking at them like kind of saying how cool it was. You know, it was a bunch of, a bunch of does hanging out here. It's awesome. And then I glance to my left and a hundred yards away, there's a bull <laughs> just <laughs> looking right at us. And uh, it was, it was crazy at that moment. Like we didn't get any footage of this because it happened just so fast. And I, I threw my, my bag off my back. I got my rifle down and it just happened. I, he turned. So it was, it was, it was, it was perfect. Again, it was, it was so crazy. He turned perfectly broadside after he was already facing me. He saw us turn broadside and just stopped for enough time where I was able to take a nice shot with my 308. I thought it was was a really perfect shot. It turned out it was. It was right where I was aiming, but I'm used to putting my crosshairs on the shoulder of a whitetail and it dropping. But I pulled that trigger and this guy ran like he didn't even have any clue that there was a bullet in him. Yeah. They're, they're tough critters, man. What caliber were you using? It's a, I'm shooting a 308. I use 150 150 grain partitions. I know it's a little bit light for some people, but I feel really comfortable with that rifle. And uh, quite frankly, I don't like my shoulder getting kicked too much with anything more. So I shoot well with it and that's, it didn't That's what I shoot. I shoot a 308 as well. I I shoot a 168 grain, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I've shot, you know, I killed a lot of critters with a 308, so that's a, that's a good rifle. It's definitely good enough for any elk, but uh, yeah, yeah. so so you see, she shot him. He took off. 
shot him. He turns and, and runs, and Luke's going, shoot him again, shoot him again. And I took two more shots as he was running. Uh, I, I ended up hitting him with one of the shots, and he, he fell down within 50 yards. And, I mean, I was just in complete awe. Yeah. <laughs> I was just shocked. We walked up to him. I'm sure anybody who's ever shot their first elk, it's huge. Oh yeah, definitely. Such a big animal. It's just the it's just your your feeling of accomplishment, I think. You know what I mean? Just to get your first elk down, have it on the ground and then I mean for you guys, you know, like with my first elk, there was a lot of suffering and anguish before the animal was down. With you guys, I think you experienced that after the after the elk was down. For sure. So, I mean, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something else. Yeah, so it, it came almost too easy and usually i like don't enjoy those kind of hunts where it just happens so fast and you don't feel like you you earned it but like you're saying like after the after the pack out the following couple of days we took our time we did one trip a day um so we we packed out i think uh back straps and tenderloins that night and the trim and then left left the four quarters uh, for the next two days. So we packed out that stuff. We, it, we took a shortcut and we almost died. <laughs> because the shortcut ended up putting us a little bit too close to the cliff. We were, we were hoping to skip the cliff by this shortcut, but we ended up getting cliffed out a couple of times and in the middle of the night. It was like two o'clock when we got back. We were crossing like scree fields that were almost vertical. At one point, I literally had to jump and grab a tree, like sprawled out because I thought I was going to fall off a cliff. It was it was actually really stupid. And probably like, we put ourselves probably in a, in a situation that we shouldn't have been in. Yeah. And it's funny that, you know what I mean? Because you always talk about, I'm not retarded. I'm, I'll never put myself in that situation. But when you're out there, I mean, I put myself in that situation more than once. And, you know, I, I've been stuck hung up on a cliff and I couldn't get up or down. I had to literally pull my pack off, lower my pack to the bottom with a rope attached to it, then tie a sticker or a twig or something around it, throw it up behind me just so I could get up top. And then I'd had to, I'd have to pull my bag up after like, and then you tell yourself, oh, I'm never going to get in that situation again. And then, you know, lo and behold, you find yourself in another situ- situ- situation similar to that. And you're like, man, what, what am I doing? What am I going to learn my lesson? It's easier than you think. That's for sure. You look yeah, you're like, yeah. And I don't think I don't think people do it intentionally going into it. No, exactly. It That's what I mean. Yeah. So it just, fast. It, 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 before you know it, you're in a situation and and where you can't reverse yourself and it's not good. But but we got out of there that night. We were tired. We slept in the next morning a little bit until maybe like seven or eight. Got up, had a nice breakfast, and went down and pulled the hindquarters out. And that was an experience completely new to us is is an elk hind quarter in your back yeah the weight (laughs) (laughs) you might as well be carrying another human in there we right we we uh put it on a scale when we got back home and those quarters were 65 pounds each so that just just the not counting all the all the water and food and everything else we brought i mean we're probably i don't know probably like a 75, 80 pound pack at that point, but yeah, man, I hear you. I know all about it. It's uh, it's not easy. No, then, you know, the, the, the thing that I'm most thankful for on that hunt was the weather. It was like clear blue skies, but it was like in the teens. So it was super cold. We had absolutely no worry of meat spoilage 
and we didn't have snow or ice or water that we were worried about slipping on. I can just imagine that that pack out if there was uh, ice on those rocks, it would have been really bad. But uh, yeah, we packed out two two days. We got the rest of that elk out. We enjoyed some some really good meat over fire. We uh, had a really good time, and and it's just I'm so glad that we brought the camera to document some of that hunt. And, you know, it was cool, man. It was cool watching you guys. uh, Well, I mean, just, just the way the hunt went down, you know, like I said, it's your, your very first elk on your very first day of your very first trip. And then, you know, you're looking at it being like, wow, man, this is easy. And, and all that and then you get an animal down and then the true suffering and pain and and i mean you guys you guys went through all the same experiences you know maybe a different order than than uh some hunts that you know that i've been on myself or some other hunts but i mean it's all the same but uh so was that the first time you ever ate elk was your elk yeah i was i mean other than i've I've had like elk jerky from the store that doesn't right yeah yeah, yeah no, that no. was the first the first time we've actually had elk, and uh, man, that is some really high quality meat. That is oh. so good. You know, along with moose, it's uh, it's it's top notch. Uh, antelope's up there too. All right, so don't get me started on moose because I have an obsession with moose. I, it's that is my absolute number one bucket list animal. Yeah, well, whereabouts? What uh, what state? I don't care. I Wherever? Think, no, I, what I, states can you hunt moose in? I know, well, obviously Alaska, uh, so Washington, I imagine. I know. So I don't apply to any Western states for moose because the odds are so low and the tags are really expensive. But in the Northeast, there's Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont have moose tags as well. They have better odds. And especially Maine has, uh, they, I think they have like around 3,000 moose tags a year that they give out. So the odds odds are in Maine are really a lot higher, and the tags are about half as half as much as if I drew in the West. But the, the crazy thing is, I have a buddy in Alaska who is a hunting fool. His name is Ryan Carter. You guys can go look him up and harass him. But this guy, he I think like a lot of Alaskans shoots a moose every year, and he he's always given me an open invitation to come up there. But the seasons conflict with my day job of teaching so bad that I can't take the time off to go up there. And, but I, if, I, if I was to pick one place to go, it would probably be BC. Yeah. However, I cannot afford a guide. So yeah. Yeah. And me hunting BC are zero. Yeah. How it is up here with non-residents and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's really tough for them to, to come up and, and do a hunt. Uh, it's expensive, but uh, yeah, I mean, we have some, we definitely have some monster moose up here. We've got some monster moose, some big elk, big muleys, a little bit of everything. And it's all over the counter too. Uh, I That's mean, awesome. you, yeah, he can go hunt uh, mountain sheep, mountain goat, elk, moose, caribou, whitetail, mule deer, bear, uh, cougar. You just got to go down and, and pace, you know, anywhere from, 20 to 40 bucks for it. So that's, that's what it's costing you as re- residents over there. <laughs> 20, yeah. 40 bucks. Oh, yeah, man. I just picked up a, a lynx and a bobcat um, tag and it was, uh, I think $16 for the both of them. That's so. awesome. That's so awesome. did, uh, did you mount your elk? I did a European mount. Uh, so I did it myself. It came out really nice. I left it in, in on my back patio for a couple of days to air out and dry after I did it. And I was really, really pissed off because the squirrels got to the antlers. And they oh, yeah. ha- so it has about five or six places on it that the squirrels were gnawing on the, my antlers. Yeah, on it. yeah. 
So it, I don't know. I'm, I've been debating whether to like patch it up and make it look better or just leave it as is as a reminder of what not to do. So I don't know. But yeah, it, it looked really good. It came out pretty nice. Yeah, a couple scars never hurt. Builds character. That's what my wife says anyway. But, uh, man, I, I, I know you're busy, and uh, I'm looking at the clock here, and we've already chewed up an hour, and it, it feels like it's been about 15 minutes. So, wow. Uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna wrap this up here, but uh, do you have any hunting plans for 2021? Uh, I'm going to do another spring bear hunt in Montana um, early June. That's my first plan for 2021. And then other, other than that, I don't know what, what uh, we're going to be doing. Uh, we'll see once uh, draw applications start going in. What about Smile Outside? Is there uh, anything you want to add to the listeners or you got any plans for some new books coming out? Uh, you know, it, I just, if you guys have kids or no kids that that uh, are in families that enjoy the outdoors or just enjoy animals in general, they're a really great set of books. They introduce a lot of different species of wildlife. And, of course, we give back to conservation. So you can feel good about yourself and love yeah. your kids all in one fell, fell swoop. What is it? Fifty cents of of every book goes towards conservation. I think at I, least, I read. Yeah, at least fifty cents from every book that we we sell goes back to conservation. So that's right around, depending on you know if it, we catch it on sale or not. At least seven percent of our sales were were given to conservation. Yeah. No. Well, uh, you know, it, it's I think it's a great thing that you guys are doing. Uh, so my hats off to you and your brother. That's great work and. Uh, the, the books you have are great. Um, you know, I got, I haven't got my books yet, but, uh, I got some on the way. So I'm looking forward to that, reading them to my kids, Absolutely. but, uh, where can all us Canadians find you? So the best place to find us is either on smileoutside.com. That's our website. Or if you want to go to our Instagram, uh, we have, we post a lot of pictures on there of, of our books and kids enjoying the books from, from folks that are sending us pictures uh, that's underscore smile underscore outside. And uh, you can contact us through either of those avenues and ask us any questions that you want. We're happy to answer anything, anything you need questions on. Yeah, right on. No, I got, uh, I'm going to put all your information up on the show notes and, and uh, I'm going to have a, a link to your guys' website on my webpage too. So uh, people can look forward to that. But uh, man, this is, uh, it's been a good time here. Uh, we should do it again sometime. Absolutely, man. I, I appreciate the invite and definitely a good chat. I love talking, talking hunting to anybody. Oh, man. Yeah, for sure. Okay, buddy. I'm going to uh, let you go. I know you got uh, some students that are probably eager to learn something. So I'll let you get back after it. All right, man. Good chat. Okay. Talk to you soon. Talk, talk to you later. Bye. Do you believe that? Wow. I guess it's all worth it. Yeah.